They say it's in your blood, a game that can't be won, only played. A love affair, it satisfies the soul and frustrates the intellect. The greatest game ever played, golf. It's real. And this is Real Golf Radio with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper, son of legendary golfer Billy Casper. Talking golf with you for more than two decades. And now, here's Brian and Bob. Thank you very much and welcome into this week's edition of Real Golf Radio. I'm Brian Taylor alongside Bob Casper. So great to be with you. It's brought to you in part by Mountainland Supply, the official irrigation supplier, Rainbird Golf Irrigation Supplier in the state of Utah and servicing the Intermountain mountain area check out mountainlandsupply.com you can find us on x at real golf search for us where your favorite podcasts are found and of course catch us on our flagship station 97.5 the ksl sports zone in salt lake city utah great to be with you at&t pebble beach pro-am this week the flagship crowning event in my opinion of the west coast swing you could argue that some people are big fans of phoenix some people are big fans of riviera but i happen to and i know bobby share this sentiment love the monterey peninsula and the history that is the crosby clam bake your dad billy casper having participated in that event many times and i assume one i mean with his 52 yes, wins I think at least a couple of times there you go that's what i figured and that was yep. back in the day when you had cypress in the rotation hmm, yeah how good is that yeah, I can remember going around Pebble Beach and Cypress and Spyglass Hill many, many times with my dad, watching him play golf there at uh, the Clambake, mm. what, what it was called before, um, staying in the Svensgard Lodge in Carmel. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite places in the whole wide world is that Monterey Carmel area. Did you ever get to actually participate in eating of the clams being baked? No. Oh. No, I did not. But I got to caddy for my dad one time there when I was in my early 20s, and guess who we played with? Who's that? Ely Calloway. Oh, really? Yes. Hey, you know what? This is a good opportunity. So here we are in our 50th year, excuse me, 50th, hello, 25th year <laughs> of Real Golf Radio. I'm into my 50th year. That, that's where that came right. from. But um, so uh, 25 years of golf. It's interesting. We've had a great partnership with Callaway uh, throughout the years. Uh-huh. Your dad was one of the first. If Was he not? Was he he the, was the first. There it is. Yeah, tell us, tell that the story. The first. Yeah, his, his first representation with... Uh, with Callaway as a golfer and a sponsored golfer um, was with Ely. And um, in fact, when I was going to tour school and that kind of thing, um, my wife and I went and stayed with Ely and his wife in Palm Springs at their house. And we had our, we had our two year old or one and a half year old son with us. And we stayed in their house with them and that kind of thing. But my dad, um, that was back when it was Callaway Hickory Sticks. And uh, so he, at the time, was also representing Cobra. So they put the Hickory Stick shafts in his Cobra irons. And, uh, yeah, my dad was the first guy. He had a, he had wedges that were designed directly, strictly for him, and also a putter that was designed strictly for him Interesting. as well. So he was yep. the very first... Uh, very first one tour player representing Callaway. Yes. How about that? that that's some legacy yep. and history there. So there you go. Yep. Hashtag 25 years of golf. Uh, mix that in there. A little history there with the Caspers, but yeah, so obviously great history with the clam bake, the Crosby clam bake. This is a reimagined year, Bob. And I, 
I love when we have to reimagine something because it needs something. It needs a boost, if you will. If you look back on some of the recent winners at AT and T, maybe they're not the biggest names out there. You know, Justin Rose is defending champ. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but you've, you've had some first time winners. You've sprinkled in some, you know, maybe not household names. And then you always had the three course rotation made it somewhat difficult to keep track of where guys were. The amateurs made the cut. The ones that made the cut played on the weekend as well. And apparently that got a lot of people. Twitter X, whatever you want to call it, would go would go in berserk on Saturday because the <laughs> television coverage showed all of the celebrities in their shots and they did interviews with them. I never understood the, the vitriol around that day. It's a particularly unique day. It feels like a celebration of the game. It reminds me somewhat of the par three tournament preceding the masters. Although right. you don't have the celebrities, you do have some that are mixed in there, you know, caddying or, caddying or whatever. Or whatever yeah. yeah. So it, but there's family. It's, it's not a serious round of golf. It's right before a serious round of golf. And it has, um, I, it just has a, a celebration of the game. So I never had the problem with the Pro-Am Saturday, but a lot of people just absolutely despised that format. So anyway, uh, surprising to me, not a lot of the big-name players, the top players in the world, would choose to come play AT&T, either because of the long rounds or because of the three different golf courses made it difficult to prepare. I'm not sure, or the fact that the greens tend to be bumpy because you had all those players on there, and oftentimes it was uh, soft conditions and Poana greens. Whatever the reason, they've got some players back this year, so their reimagining is two golf courses, Spyglass and Pebble, a limited field, signature event, $20 million purse, and all the top guys showed up. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's it's really good to uh, to see the guys that are, that are playing there. You've got uh, the top 10 in the FedEx Cup from last year. They're playing. You've got the top, the top uh, twenty six of the top thirty. You've got uh, nine of the top ten in the Fisher World Golf Rankings. Forty one of the top fifty, and it goes on and on and on. So, um, but you know, it's it's a, an amazing event. Uh, there was always a rotation of players and celebrities, and if you got in the celebrity rotation, then that is when it fell on Pebble Beach. And that's when you saw the guys being interviewed in the little tents right there off of the 17th hole and and all that kind of thing. So uh, a lot of the guys didn't want to be in the celebrity rotation. They wanted to be away from that on on Saturday and finish on one of the other two courses. But now this course is only being played or this tournament is only being played at Spyglass Hill and Pebble Beach, where before there was always a third course with 156 players and then all the amateurs that went with it. Yeah. So again, did you have a problem? Like, do you think this is a better format than what the the previous historical event was with the three course rotation and all the celebs? No, I, I, I didn't. I didn't mind that one as at all. Um, but the reason that we have this is because the field's been cut down to eighty players, and now only eighty guys um, or amateurs or celebrities can get in the event. Now, I do. I, I will say this. I do think it's going to add some continuity to be able to have all of the players playing the same golf course on both Saturday and Sunday. Right. Right. Because that was a bit 
chaotic on Saturdays. They bounced around to the different golf courses. So everybody will get a chance to play Spyglass, kind of like the North Course at Torrey Pines, right? When that was that that's in the mix there. But then the weekend is all all one PGA golf course. Tour players, yeah, and all and all PGA Tour players. Um, the, the pro am is only the first two rounds and then it's done. Yeah, exactly. So a uh, couple of, uh, uh, news and notes to throw out there. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, who won last year is back and apparently his handicap has been adjusted. <laughs> that was, there was a huge to do about that. Apparently they felt like he was way too good of a player for the amount of shots he got last year. Can you say sandbagger? Well, apparently he was maybe a little bit sandy. Yeah. So they cut him down. Yes, they did. They trimmed that off. Uh, hey, by the way, that begs the question, Bob. Um, mm-hmm. Who who would you choose if you were playing in the Pebble Beach Pro? Like Tony Finos playing with Utah Jazz owner Ryan Smith. Right. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, yeah. and they're friends. They've played a lot of golf together, and and I think Ryan's caddied for him on a couple of occasions. But yes, what? Well, who would you choose? What, what do you think? Who, who, who's your? If as you were to, far as an amateur is concerned, well, right now you're an am. So why don't you pick your pro? If you were to take a pro that's in the field this week, who would be your top choice? You know, I would really enjoy because my dad just loved the way this kid played. Um, and he said, as you know, as recent as 2015, my dad said, I like the way that kid plays. I like the way he goes about um, his business on the golf course. And I, I would enjoy playing with Jordan Spieth. Dang it. That's who I picked. <laughs> I agree with you. By the we way, think I a think, lot alike. I think he would have. I think he would be a fun guy to play with. I was kind of. I was kind of going or back. Scotty. Before. Scotty would be a fun one too. I don't. Uh, yes. Nothing against Scotty. I'm sure he would be. Right. But I think Jordan right. is a lot more personality. I probably would go with Rory second. Yeah. So I was kind of bouncing yeah. between Rory. I think it'd be interesting just to 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 watch Rory. I actually just love watching Rory swing a golf club. I mean, oh, that would amazing. be a treat, right? To walk yeah, and see him do that up close. But, um, yeah, Jordan Spieth, I just think his, listening to his, he would have, it sounds like he's always talking. And I would just love to hear that dialogue for two days. That'd be fun. Yeah. Okay, now you're the pro. You get to pick your celeb. Who's your celeb? Oh, my goodness. I'll help. While you're Who, thinking, I'll, I'll give you my. Okay. I, I'm you going, go. I'm not saying they have to be in the field this week. This, we're just talking about, uh, you know, celebrities that love to play the game. And I think I'd go Steph Curry. I mean, the guy is one of the greatest all-time NBA players, and he's super passionate about the game. And I think just being around greatness, regardless of the sport, I thought about MJ, but as much as I would love MJ, I don't think I could afford to play with MJ because of the amount of you know uh, <laughs> wagering that goes on around him. Um, but I think Steph Curry, I think that would be that would be fun. I mean, it would be fun to listen to him. He's um, he's a great player and I think it would be, I think it'd be an enjoyable round. So that's, that's who I'd go with. You go with Steph Curry, huh? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm going for a little bit of a different reason because, um, I know this guy, he's a friend. Um, he played in the Bay area, played football and stuff like that. I think I'd go with Steve Young if he mm. was going to play. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. he is playing this week and he made birdie on seven. He said for the first time. There you uh, go. In, in the opening round. So, yep. yeah, that's pretty good stuff. I mean, yeah. I mean, if yep. you're playing in the Pro-Am and you can birdie seven, I mean. That's good. That's what else. I mean, you, you sort of like just chalk it up, like just tip your cap and wave. I'm out, George Costanza style. 
We'll see you later. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, the, uh, some of the guys, like you mentioned, Scotty Scheffler, playing this event for the very first time. Some of the guys that haven't played here for a while, you know, Justin Thomas, Sandra Shoffley, Tony Fino. You know, my, my question is why? Why are these guys um, not wanting to put this in the rotation? And I understand that you have to make some decisions. You've got Riviera that's around the corner. Some guys really like to play in Phoenix because they spend their, their winters there, you know. But um, I just, I mean, obviously Jordan always plays here because he's sponsored by AT&T, and so that's a natural right. thing. Uh, Tiger liked to play here back in the day, but you know it was kind of a home game for him with his time at Stanford and growing up in California. So uh, Phil Mickelson played here all the time. Um, Mark O'Meara. I mean, he had a lot of players back in the day that it seemed like it was a fairly prestigious event. It just seems to have lost a little bit of that prestige. So they go for the reimagine, and here we got uh, you know a limited field, huge purse, and just eighty players over two golf. No cuts. Yeah. Yeah. No cuts. And, uh, and and the interesting thing was is that for a long time in the eighties, um, that a lot of the guys that were living in Florida or living elsewhere around the world, um, Nick Price's, Greg Norman's, those guys wouldn't even play the West Coast Swing. They would they wouldn't catch up to the tour until February or March when they started in Florida. So that's where it kind of all started to happen. And then as more of the European players and more of the DP World Tour players and the players that played around the world, as as the beginning of the year starts out, they're playing over in the Middle East on the DP World Tour, and mm-hmm. less of them came this way to play on the West Coast and the West Coast Swing. By the way, in all the golf courses that you've played, where do you rank Pebble? Oh, it's got to it's got to be uh, it's got to be way up there. Um, you know, of course, Augusta and uh, Wingfoot and Oak. Um, you know, up up there in in San Francisco at Olympic oh, Club Olympic, and yeah. that kind of thing. But Pebble is like right up there with all of them, and I love being able to go around there. Yeah, I think Pebble's in my top five. Yeah, no um, doubt. You know, if 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 you if you start to add it up, you know, we've had a chance to play uh, in some pretty um, pretty awesome places. But uh, I I definitely would put that up there in my top five. In fact. Um, there was a, a little thread going along in social media recently, and and they said, throw your top five in there. It was Matt Janella, actually, and uh-huh. he had Pebble. So Matt Janella's top five is Cypress, uh, National Golf Links, Pine Valley, Pebble Beach, and Augusta National. That's a pretty good top wow. five, right? Yeah, that's a really good top five. So I told him I'd play, and I went Augusta, Pine Valley, Shinnecock, Wingfoot, and Olympic. But my next five, which he had an X5 in there, I put Pebble. So I had it listed at six. Yeah, yeah. Well, my tops have to be the top three that every one of them that my dad won a, a major <laughs> championship on, and that's Olympic Wingfoot and Augusta. So. And that's pretty cool to have those golf yep. courses, you know, and be able to go out and play them as well. So, hey, by the way, coming up next, uh, the big story in the game of golf, didn't want to lead with it, but it's obviously something we're going to talk about uh, going forward here over the next uh, hour and a half is this uh, announcement by the PGA Tour, $3 billion with a billion and a half already from SSG. What does this mean for the tour? What does this mean for negotiations with PIF? What does this mean um, in turn for live golf? And are we any closer to bringing everyone back under one roof? Well, coming up next, Rex Hoggard, who's been covering this story since the beginning, um, is out at Pebble Beach. He's going to join us coming up next. We'll have him break that down for us. And then we're going to get into some some speed training and some biomechanics with the golf swing. That's all coming up right here on Real Golf Radio. Now, back. 
back to Real Golf Radio with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper. Welcome back to Real Golf Radio. Brian Taylor, Bob Casper. Pleased to be joined by our good friend Rex Hoggard from Golf Channel and GolfChannel.com. He's out of Pebble Beach this week and a lot of news going on out of this new signature event. Rex, how's it going, man? Uh, it's Pebble Beach. In different events, different fields, smaller fields, not quite celebrities. Like Everything is kind of different about it, and I love the fact that the one thing that doesn't change is Crosby weather. It's wet, it's cold, it's windy. And I think that that at least we hit, we can cling to that. All right, I like that. So they talk about it being "quote unquote" reimagined. Are you down with this reimagining, or are you kind of sitting back reimagining what it used to be like? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'm a man of a certain age. So I'm always going to pine for the days when you know the celebrities were here. And I think I, I mentioned this earlier in the week when we were kind of talking about it. They they have taken a proven commodity, and we can all agree, like of. All the PGA Tour events, Pebble Beach stands out. And the reason it stands out, though, is a little bit different than why maybe CPG Sawgrass or some of the other venues stand out. The golf course is the star this week. I mean, I think everybody on the East Coast tunes in just to see the sunshine and the Monterey Peninsula and all of those beautiful vistas that we see, and also the celebrities. It's kind of a hit and giggle, and you might like it, you might not. I've never been a big fan of that, but it certainly it resonates with certain uh, folks in the audience. You had those two things and now you sort of flip that and you essentially taken the field, cut it in half. You've given it the, I've been told it's the best field they've ever had here for the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. I'm curious and I'll give it the benefit of the doubt now and just wait to see how it plays out. And I'm not even talking this week. I think George B said this a few weeks ago. It's a pivotal year for the PGA Tour for a lot of reasons, but one, They've invested very heavily in whatever these signature events are going to be. And I think once that we get to the end of the year and we can take them in totality, it will be interesting dissecting exactly how successful or not they are. Hmm. You know, it's kind of, it's interesting with you're talking about Pebble Beach and, and that's kind of the, the hallmark of that whole peninsula and stuff like that. But I remember going there when I was a little kid and um, my dad would be playing there every year. Uh, but, you know, and the the rotation was Pebble, uh, Spyglass, and Cypress, and and then it's morphed all the way to now where it's just Pebble and Spyglass. But it it's as I told you in a text, it's my favorite place in the world as far as golf is concerned. And to be able to have it a signature event with all these great players, I think it's going to be a phenomenal event this week. I think so too, and I think if we get to Sunday and look, we can talk about the weather going to be varying shades of awful. I think it's what we come to expect here. But if it cooperates just a little bit, and then you end up with what the tour hopes they're going to have. And that's some variation of the game's top players going head-to-head on a Sunday. And if you look at the season so far, like we've had some really cool stories, but that's not really what we want here. I would say that's really not what the tour wants here. They want Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy or Scotty Scheffler all the top players going head-to-head on a Sunday. If you get that formula, I'm with you 100%. Rex Hogger joining us. Can we just talk real quickly about why this event needed to be reimagined? Because you mentioned you don't really love the hit and giggle Saturday. It used to bring out a lot. Twitter was awesome on Saturday of, of Pebble Beach. Normally, all the people that hated seeing the Kevin Costners and the Bill Murrays and all that kind of stuff. And then there's those that absolutely loved it, and they would go back and forth. Um the, the, as Bob just pointed out, you know, Billy Casper is one of the all-time greatest players of all time. He never missed uh, the Crosby. And mo- I, the, 
top players played the Crosby. That was just something that they did. And then somehow it morphed away from that. I'm surprised at the players that are playing for the first time. Scotty Scheffler, for instance. Justin Thomas hasn't been there for a bit. Finau hasn't been there for a bit. A lot of guys that haven't played for some time, Xander Shoffley and others. Why do you suppose the players stopped playing uh, Pebble Beach? Is it that it just takes so long? It's the three courses. The, the amateurs are really more of a pain to play with than we realize. What, what do you suppose factored into the, the lack of uh, a star power to this event? I'm going to push back a little bit. I don't think it had to be reimagined. I think Pebble is kind of a standalone. And yes, I'm sure they wish they would have gotten better fields over the last few years or even decades. But I, as I pointed out, like the, the golf course and the celebrities were the star. And I think it was a very enjoyable, compelling, fun event to watch. I think you can make the argument for TPC Scottsdale is probably very similar. You don't necessarily need a good field there. It's sort of the, the fans and the crowd is the show. To answer your question, though, I, it just didn't fit in the guy's schedule. It was funny. Rory was kind of asked about this earlier in the week. And when it comes to him being a European, he wants to start the season in the United Arab Emirates. And he's had success there. For a guy like Scottie Scheffler, you, you sort of want to build up. I think everybody wants to build up to the Masters. There's a lot of reasons why guys didn't come here. Certainly five and a half, six-hour rounds factor into that. And to your point, I think it takes a certain kind of player, a certain kind of personality to make the most of that of what was the celebrity portion that sort of Saturday with all the stars and, and all the shenanigans for lack of a better term. <laughs> I think Jordan Spieth is a great example of that. Like he loved coming here playing with Jake Owen and he still loves coming here. But he talked about it yesterday. Like he's kind of bummed that he won't have Jake Owen by his side. Some guys love that. Some guys don't. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Rex Hoggard, Golf Channel joining us. Go ahead, Bob. Well, the other big story um, that came out uh, the beginning of the week was SSG and the the tour um, coming together as a financial partner and um, with with the PGA Tour Enterprises and a three billion dollar investment with a B? Um, what are your thoughts so far with uh, what's going on there? And then we'll ask you some more questions about the whole process and uh, what it means to the tour. Uh, it's up to three billion dollars with a B in journalism okay. and headlines it gets weird these days. I think they sort of lean into it right now. The investment is 1.5 billion with an option to put in another 1.5 billion. And that 1.5 billion is roughly 11% of the valuation of what PGA tour enterprises is going to be. And please don't ask me exactly what PGA tour enterprises is going to be. Cause I wouldn't have a clue. I, I think it's a good first step talking with players. Certainly on Wednesday, when the announcement was made, there's probably more questions now than answers but I think that was always going to be the situation because these kinds of deals are very complicated. You factor in that this is just the first step in what, in what likely could potentially be an even more billion-dollar deal if you get some public investment from Saudi Arabia involved. So I think right now, it's the, the line that kept coming up, the word that kept coming up was stability. That after two, two and a half, three years of a lot of instability in the game, a lot of unknowns and a lot of, anxiety over the future of the PGA Tour. This gives some sort of stability that hadn't been there. I think the other half of it is for those who are looking towards the future and whatever PGA Tour enterprises come, it is a good, really, really good first step. And by that, I mean, and, and look, I'm not convinced that the Tour will come to some sort of agreement with the public investment fund. I think it's still sort of up in the air based on everything I'm hearing. But at least now you have what is essentially a starting point with the PIP where you can point to and say, SSG has invested $1.5 billion, and that's 11% equity, essentially, 
in whatever that, that enterprise is, is going to be. So it's a good starting point for there. I personally don't know how we move forward without all parties involved, sort of coming under the same roof, PGA Tour Enterprises. But I think there's still a lot, a lot of moving parts on that. Yeah, I, you met, you know, the first thing you said there is there's still more questions than answers, which is that's the theme through this whole this whole process since we started talking to you back when you were at uh, say in San Francisco at the courthouses and, and everything. And you've been on this story all the way along. I guess my question, maybe you can't answer based on that statement, but are we cl- any closer to bringing everybody back under one roof with this one announcement? I mean, I don't know what you would call close. I, I don't think we'll see it, certainly not this year. I don't even think we'll see it next year. And again, uh, based on some of the things I've heard over the last few days, I don't know that it's a 100% done deal that you'll get all three of these. And I'm talking about the PGA Tour, DP World Tour, and Live Golf under that same umbrella that we keep talking about. I will say this, though, and people who are much smarter and, and know how to do these types of deals have told me repeatedly that when you start talking about multi-billion dollar deals that involve international companies and a lot of moving parts, it takes time. There's a lot of nuance. Now you factor into the idea that this deal has two separate entities. You had SSG, which they have cleared that hurdle, and now you have PIP. So it's not only a multi-billion dollar deal, but you're dealing with two separate entities. That complicates things even further. And in this particular case, and you know, we've talked a lot about this, there's a lot of other nuance when it comes to this. How will the players who join Live Golf be allowed to come back to the PGA Tour? How will the players who remained on the PGA Tour be compensated. I, I think yesterday we got a bit of an answer on that one, and that's, that's going to be equity in whatever PGA Tour enterprises become. But there's so many layers to this. I don't think there's never, there was never going to be a day when the PGA Tour just announced a press conference and laid everything out, laid out the deals, laid out exactly what it's going to mean for the players and the fans and the TV network, laid out exactly what the schedule is going to look like. I don't think that day was ever going to come. And there's also uh, involved in this government and government agencies and that kind of thing that really have to sign off on this as well, correct? And that's the big part of it. Like I said, when I said stability, it, it is stability for the PGA Tour because the only way this is going to work, and again, I'm sort of under the mindset that you need all three enterprises together. You need all three parties playing under the same roof. A fractured game, in my opinion, just doesn't work. And so now you've got that starting point that I talked about as far as negotiations with PIF, but you've also got something you can show the Department of Justice and the U.S. Senate, which continues its investigation as well. It will mitigate things. I'm not saying it'll make investigations go away or concern go away for regulators and lawmakers, but if you can point to SSG as a minority shareholder, and those are all American companies who are well-versed in uh, American sports enterprises, if you can point to that and say they, along with the PII, are going to be minority investors, I think that makes it easier I don't, I'm not saying it's going to pave the way and make the Department of Justice investigation go away because I don't think that happens, but it certainly makes it more palatable for the investigators. Do you think that John Rahm's move uh, and what he did obviously capitalized very well financially, but you almost had this sort of wink-wink when he did it, like, I'm just snagging this while the money's available. I'll be back before you know it, and now it doesn't necessarily feel like he, he'll be back sooner, as soon as he may have thought. I think, and again, you're getting sort of two schools of thought, and one is coming from Rory McIlroy, and, and interesting enough, one came from Jordan Spieth yesterday, where Rory has taken a, a very conciliatory tone, especially considering where he was two years ago on this issue. He actually said that the players who left should be allowed to come back, no penalty, left, go to live. And he also made a comment about Terrell Hatton. And Terrell Hatton, when he 
joined Live Golf this week, and there's a lot of things that go into play. But to play in the TGL, which is the league that Rory is a part of, you got to be a tour member. And so he had to go away. And Rory's comment was, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Terrell ends up back on my TGL team, which means, in my mind, it's, Rory sees the future with everybody under one roof. He sees the game reunited. And I tend to lean in that direction. Listening to Jordan Spieth yesterday, though, talk about you know where we might be. I'm not 100% certain that's the case. And Jordan Spieth is in that room now. He's, done, he's one of the play directors on the policy board. So I can see where someone like Rory is coming from because it just makes sense in my mind mm. that we have two events going on this week. And some of the stars in Mexico and some of the stars are here at Pebble Beach. That's not good for the fans. That's not good for either tour. That's certainly not good for the television product. So I think a best case scenario is everyone under the same roof, but I'm not quite sure we'll end up there. You know, we had a couple of uh, players meetings. Uh, you had said uh, four hours for the first one and an hour and a half call in. Um, you also mentioned equity and the players being equity partners. Break that down a little bit as to what that entails or who will get those equity shares and that type of thing. Again, more questions than answers. And this is, this is very much uh, a moving target. And there's a reason behind it. There's a lot of legal hurdles that the PGA Tour has to cover. There's, they have to do some filings with the SEC and figure out exactly how they're going to do shares. So that's, that's a little complicated. But I talked to one player director yesterday that sort of laid out the idea of equity stake in PGA Tour enterprises would probably be handled similar to the way the tour handles its retirement program. And it's a points-based system. You would earn a point if you won on the PGA Tour. You would want a point if you qualified for the Tour Championship. You would win a point if you played in the Players' Championship, whatever the case may be. And so they've done those models. And the idea right now is they kind of broke it down to the top 36 players on that current points list. And it's the way they're doing it, at least in theory, would be like a five-year rolling window. So the top 36 would get the majority of that first wave of equity shares. And then I can break it down, but... You just get the idea that they're going to get more equity shares than others. So that would be the top 36. The next kind of 72 players on that list get a, another smaller portion of that. And then there's also going to be some sort of mechanism to recognize what was, was described to me as like legacy players. That would be Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods, who clearly isn't playing, wouldn't be earning points in that five-year window. But we can all agree that they should be recognized. They should be investors in this as well. They should get equity along with everyone else. And so that's kind of what they're heading towards, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of real estate between where we are now and where I think we end up. Bob wants to throw Billy Casper's name in there in perpetuity, <laughs> just for the record. So, um, <laughs> Hey Rex, uh, before we let you go, the last thing I would want to say is, is you mentioned stability, right? And I guess the question that keeps rattling around in my head is, was the PGA tour in trouble? Were they in danger of not being able to perform to continue or was chasing the PIF dollars, what got them in trouble, these elevated purses put them kind of over their skis, if you will, to the point where that created the instability? Or is it just simply a, a product standpoint of stars being, uh, that, that pie of stars being divided? I don't know if trouble is the right way I would say it, but the path the tour was on without some sort of investment, whether it's private equity or otherwise, was not sustainable. Mm. And this goes back to the meeting, I believe it was in Canada, right after the June 6th announcement, I think it was the day after, they announced the framework agreement with the Public Investment Fund. And by all accounts, I've been told that Jay Monaghan painted a pretty gloomy picture of where the tour was right now, that they had dipped into their reserves to meet these elevated persons. Like mm -hmm. we're, we're, what, $20, 25000000 million this week at Pebble Beach. And at least last year, that did not all come from at and the sponsors. The, the tour had to dig into its reserves 
as part of its strategic, strategic alliance with the DP World Tour. They had to dig into their reserves to pay for all the legal fees at the lawsuit that you just mentioned in San Jose. So they were not on a sustainable path. Even when you think about how flush with cash they were after this last round of TV negotiations and media rights, they were certainly going to have to make changes, dramatic changes, that were going to make it hard to compete with Live Golf and sort of those unlimited resources. So I don't know if trouble is the right word, but it wasn't sustainable. Mm. All right. Well, we didn't even have time to talk about the real issue this week, and that's Aaron Rodgers' adjusted handicap. But I guess we'll have to <laughs> save that for another time. Rex, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Great insights. Enjoy the Monterey Peninsula. I hope the weather at least provides a, a little bit of reprieve for you to enjoy it out there. I would say Larry Fitzgerald's handicap is the one we should be looking at. I watched him ball yesterday. That dude's a machine. There's no way he should be getting strokes from anybody. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> have fun, Rex. Hey, boys. There you go, Rex Hogger, Golf Channel, golfchannel.com. He's awesome. He and Ryan Lavner with their podcast, uh, check it out. And then, of course, doing great reports on Golf Channel and some awesome stories and insights on golfchannel.com, which I guess is now NBC Sports slash golf, whatever that is. You can still get to it through golfchannel.com. Stay tuned. More of the show coming up next. You're listening to Real Golf Radio. Talking golf with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper. One day you'll get it. Here's Brian and Bob. Welcome back. It's Real Golf Radio. Brian Taylor, Bob Casper. Thanks again for joining us. We mentioned some of the PGA Merchandise Show stuff that we saw last week and uh, told you that there would be more to come. Well, here is more to come. Our good friend Tyler Standiford is joining us. He's a biomechanics professor at Utah Valley University. He's also a golf consultant, has his own golf lab, and is uh, really behind a lot of really interesting things about the way the body moves in relation to a golf speed, golf swing, and how you can increase your speed and increase your your distance of course with the the game and enjoy it a little bit better and bob and i had a chance to work with tyler last year and the the it was impressive uh, the results were impressive and i'm excited to say tyler joining us right now tyler standard for joining us right now tyler i'm excited to say that uh, uh speed training 2024 is officially underway awesome I, this is a great time if you're in utah and uh, you know you maybe got another six weeks before the season hopefully kicks off and uh yeah great time to get after it and, and get those speeds up again yeah it was uh is a six-week training that we did in the spring of 23 and just to give you some in, in information for those of you that are listening my club head speed when i began was 111.5 which translated to a ball speed of 154.5 that was a 247 carry and a 273 total. These are driver numbers, right? So after my six-week course went back in, did all the same things again on Tyler's stuff, and my clubhead speed had increased five miles an hour from 111 to 116. Ball speed went from 154 to 165. Carry went from, 70, uh, from 47 to 78 which was more than my total. And then my total went from 73 to 90, 98, which is, uh, that's 25 yards. I mean, that's all that's pretty remarkable. And consequently, I played my best golf at 49 years old that I had ever played in my life. And I attribute it to, you know, working on my swing, working on my physique, but the speed training was massive. Um, I, I'm not really saying that all to, to necessarily brag or anything like that, but Tyler, what, what goes on for a guy my age that's not in any particularly good condition to be able to attain those kind of numbers and results. Yeah. And honestly, it's, I always tell people this, like there's no secret sauce in speed training. It's, it's just consistently getting after it. Right. I mean, the, 
the protocols are there. We, we've, we've created those as a result of direct research in my lab. So they're founded upon principles of, we know when you do these things, uh, you know, ground reaction force improves, sequencing improves, and but you got to do the work, right? And so, you know, especially like you said, you, you kind of start approaching that 50 year old and think, man, I, I don't want to lose the distance I once had. It's just a prime time. And it's like, pay, pay tribute to you, Brian, I think, because you just got after it and stuck with it and then saw the results. And that's why you're eager to get after it again. And, and that's kind of what we see there, which is kind of a fun thing for me where, we can maybe help golfers who work hard get those initial 20, 25 yards. But once you've got the 20 or 25, you want to say, well, where's the next 10 to 15 going to come from? And, and I get to be a part of the research that finds that. Ooh, I love that. So you were talking about um, ground force and sequencing. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and how this speed training helps with those t- for you to be able to hit better golf shots and, har- and longer yep. golf shots. Yeah, so I'll say that the, the biggest thing about ground reaction force or how hard a golfer is pushing on the ground is is can we get force going to that lead leg earlier in the swing, pushing both down and towards the target? That's kind of a lot of people think it's just about this weight shift. I got to go load trail, load lead, but that lead leg plays a really critical role where it's got to push down really hard. It's got to push. Uh, towards the target really hard and kind of towards the ball really hard. Um, and what we find is that when people just do speed training, when, when they're just swinging clubs quickly, those three forces increase, right? That lead leg almost kind of wakes up a bit and golfers start pushing harder. They push a little bit earlier in the downswing. And, and those are the things that, that are directly correlated to swing speed. And that's, that's why we see those great results. Just for the record, I, I we use and Tyler uh, recommends using Superspeed Golf, and I went on and ordered. I went to SuperspeedGolf.com and ordered my dad. He's seventy-two, and he's been complaining and moaning, Tyler, that he's you know he just doesn't hit it anywhere anymore, and he's having a hard time enjoying it. So I said, Dad, I said this is what you're doing. I said I ordered them for you. They're on their way. They'll be at your house. I sent him your videos, and I said, it's, it's, it's 15 minutes a day, three days yeah. a week. It's not a massive commitment, but you'll get right. really impressive results. So um, I, I didn't even realize that they had a senior weight, so I thought that was good because mm-hmm. he yeah. swings obviously a lot um, um, slower than I do. So uh, yeah, I guess that'll be good I've, for him. I've collected data, Brian. I had a guy that was uh, had just turned 80 come into my lab, and did the same protocols you did. And yeah, he also gained four or five miles an hour and picked up about 15 yards. And like you said, for, for a 75, 80 year old, like it works for them. Again, they just use, use the right set. That's the right weight to go through the protocols and the speed's there for them too. Mm. Tyler Stander for joining us here on real golf radio. Hey, one of the things I wanted to, to, that I saw that they were featuring super speed was this grip pressure. Now you, you spent some time with us and you have us do a grip pressure monitor when we were as part of our process. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I noticed they came out with a trainer kind of, looks like a foam overlay onto your grip to, 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 can you tell us a little bit what they're trying to do and what have you found as it relates to grip pressure and speed? Yeah. It, it, great, great question. So, and this is kind of what I said to begin with, right? Where's the next 10 to 15 yards going to come from? And this is a place where we've collected a lot of data on this. And so, it's important to understand there's a difference between grip strength and grip pressure. So grip strength is just, you know, if I give you a device, it's called a dynamometer, you squeeze this thing as hard as you can. And it tells me how many pounds of force you can squeeze with. 
Um, and what we find again and again is that when you compare amateur golfers to professional golfers or low speed players to high speed players, there's, there's a direct correlation between grip strength and swing speed. Um, in fact, I did a study last summer where I had a hundred golfers on the course and I tested everyone's grip strength, put them in front of a track, man, looked at their club speed. And, and again, that relationship is just so direct. And so, and, and what we find is that a lot of amateur golfers do, do lack some of this grip strength. And so we developed this device to say, Hey, you know, the traditional way to train grip strength is you just pick up really, really heavy stuff and carry it all around. Well, I, I don't know how many golfers are going to jump into a gym and do that. So as you described, Brian, it's, it's a device that goes around your club. It's got some amount of density to it. So you can just kind of go through these protocols to squeeze as hard as you can um, and train that grip strength. But the secret sauce, I think in this, Brian, is that you actually can swing it with your club. And then you get into what you just described, which is how a golfer kind of dynamically alters pressure in the swing. Uh, and we're seeing some awesome results with people who train with us. Wow. Okay. So what about, what about grip size as far as the player is concerned um, with their hands and that kind of thing? Grip size, does that matter as well? That matter. I mean, that, that is such a huge uh, myth, I think, for a lot of people where traditionally what we've done in terms of fitting grip size is, is it's kind of based on hand size. In fact, you can go to websites right now and they'll have you input your hand size and it might say, oh, your hands are small, let's fit you into this small grip. You've got bigger hands, uh, maybe mid-size, oversize. Um, because we now have the technology to dynamically measure grip forces and pressure. So I actually have a club in my lab where I can see exactly what a player does dynamically in the swing. And what you start to see, and, and I'm just one person who's doing this, there's a lot of other really bright people doing similar research. They find that about 80% of people, Bob, are fit into the wrong grip size. Um, and, and typically what we see is that the less grip strength you have, the, the potentially more beneficial it would be for you to be fit in a little bit bigger grip. Um, and so you think about people who might lack grip strength, which is our, our female golfers, uh, our senior golfers, they, they tend to have smaller hands and would go to these smaller grips. They would really actually benefit from exploring, you know, at least a mid-sized grip uh, because that's going to actually allow them to apply a little bit better pressures throughout the swing. Interesting. So a little bigger grip, they can squeeze it a little harder for, for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the idea. Even on this sensor that I use, Brian, like when I test someone and I'll do, in fact, I did this with our men's golf team and I put it on its smallest setting, almost to simulate a kind of a small or regular grip. I see what they can squeeze and then I make it a little bit bigger to, you know, kind of simulate, well, what would happen if the grip was a little bit bigger and almost every single person, that number jumps up quite a bit. Now it's not everyone. And, and if you already have a lot of grip strength, then I think you have some flexibility to say, I like the feel of a smaller grip. Um, but, but man, if you're lacking grip strength, like I just can't stress enough, like go, go somewhere where you can hit some midsize or bigger grips hit them and look at some dispersion patterns and, and swing speeds. And, and I think you'd see a, a potential big improvement there. Tyler Stanford's biomechanics professor at Utah Valley University. He's also a golf consultant, has a golf lab, and is doing a lot of research on this. This is fascinating. I feel like we're just scratching the surface a little bit. So for those that are listening going, hey, I'm really interested in this. How do I, where do I go? How do I get started? What would you, what would you say? 
Yeah. I mean, I would say at the very first, like, uh, probably assume that you lack grip strength. I think that's an okay assumption from the research I've done. You might not, but, but I would say a vast majority of people do. And so it's about figuring out how to up that grip strength. So like you said, uh, at super speed, you know, we developed this device called the squeeze, which basically is a way to train that grip strength. I think that would be kind of step number one. Uh, I think step number two, uh, would be to, again, explore the option of some of these, you know, go hit some mid-sized grips and see how they feel. And then, I'm gosh, I'm always looking for people who are willing to be a part of research studies. Uh, and so I would love, you know, for people to find me on, you know, social media or whatever email and, and say, hey, I'd love to be a part of the study. And we get you in and actually can kind of dynamically measure these grip pressures and strengths, have you train and kind of see those results. I love that. And also same thing with the speed training, right? I mean, the super speed training, super easy and you can get on there and Tyler will be happy to show you, uh, follow Stanford Tyler at Stanford Tyler is where uh, you can find him on Twitter. And I would definitely recommend you give him a follow, reach out, connect and uh, take advantage of, I mean, Tyler's doing some great stuff. It's helped me. I'm, I'm a testimonial, I guess, if you will, cause it, it worked. And if it works for me, I'm nothing special. So Tyler, thanks so much for taking the time to enlighten us. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll do this again real soon. Yeah, sounds, sounds great. Always fun to talk to you. There you go. Tyler Stanford from Utah Valley University, biomechanics professor, golf um, consultant, researcher, really great guy and articulate. Hope you enjoyed that. Again, uh, check him out on Twitter. Stanford Tyler is where you can find him there. And uh, we'll be sure to bring Tyler back on for uh, more follow-up stuff. But, yeah, speed training is underway 2024. Let's go. Stay tuned. More of the show coming up next.